Well, welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you are joining us from the lobby, we see out there, we're here in this room, we are glad you are here. If you are new, what we do here is we just march through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what that ends up leading to is we end up talking about all sorts of topics. And so today we're going to be in James chapter 5, which is the last book of James. And if you've got your or last chapter of James, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. And here's how James is going to start chapter 5. He's going to start out chapter 5 talking about your money and your stuff. He's going to say, how you view your wealth matters. And then the second thing he's going to talk about is how you walk through suffering matters. And so he's going to talk about your pain and he's going to talk about your pleasure. And he's going to say that with both of those things, what you need to have is you need to have an eternal perspective. Now, let me start here because I know that as soon as I say the word money, some of you tense up and you get on edge. Well, let me just put you at ease. We're not taking up a special offering today. We pass the buckets after every service, but there's nothing special about that. Our pastoral staff is not in need of a private jet, so you can just breathe out and relax. No, no one's going to pickpocket you when you walk out of here today. But the truth is that we need to talk about money. Why? Because money is the number one competitor to God in the human heart. Money is so important that 15% of everything that Jesus said in the scriptures is about money. And when Jesus would talk about money, he, he would talk about it in a way that he said, money is not a bad thing. Money's just dangerous. And so money's similar to fire. You know, fire, it can, it can provide heat. It can provide warmth. And at the same time, it can burn everything to the ground. And so money's not a bad thing. It's just dangerous. And what James is going to say at the first part of chapter five is that we need to talk about your wealth and your money because you and I have a possession obsession. You and I have a possession obsession, possession obsession. And here's the truth about your possessions. Everything that you currently own is a gift from God that you should be stewarding. We see in James 1 that every good and perfect gift is from above. Everything that you currently have, everything is God's already. You own nothing that was not given to you. Now, I know you might say, well, I worked hard to get where I'm at. And I made a lot of good decisions. I made some sacrifices along the way. And that might be true. But I could also show you some guys who also made a lot of good decisions and worked hard. And the ball hasn't bounced their way like it's bounced for you. And so everything that you have, all of your possessions are gifts from God for you to steward. And one of the things that makes us distinct and different from the world is not that we're generous. You don't have to be a Christian to be generous. There are a lot of people who are non-Christians, who are very generous. But what makes us distinct and different from the world is our motive for generosity. Because we understand as Christians that in spite of our rejection of him, what God has done is he has been gener generous to us. He's been generous to us with mercy, with forgiveness, with acceptance. And in response to his generosity, we are therefore generous. But here's the thing, even though most of us know that, we still end up having possession obsession. And what ends up happening is we think that we own our stuff when our stuff actually ends up owning us. So for the last 14 years, I've been driving a 2006 Dodge Dakota. It's the, it's the only vehicle I've ever driven. I love that thing. It's still running just fine. My wife wants me to get rid of it, but I haven't yet. Maybe with some more kids. But because I've been driving it for so long, I don't really care if it gets nicked or deemed. If, if there's a little scratch on it, okay. I wash it like twice a year. 
In fact, about a year ago, uh, my buddy Ryan noticed that the side of my truck had been keyed. And he was like, hey, man, did you notice this thing? Your truck's been keyed? I was like, actually, I, I didn't notice that. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, a couple years ago, Olivia and I, we, we bought her a new Toyota Camry. And once we got that car, I started to notice every nick. I started to notice every door ding. If there was a bug on the paint, I would start to freak out a little bit. It's like, we, we need to get this off of here. <laughs> I would start to do things like park a half a mile away from the store so that people would be less likely to ding my car. Well, why did I do that? It's because my possession was affecting my emotions. And instead of me owning the car, the car was owning me. And so the reason we need to talk about money is because your possessions and your money is deeply connected to your heart. Well, what do we know about your heart? It's deceitful. Who is most likely to lie to you about whether or not you like money? You are. And for some reason, we, it's so easy for us to convince ourselves that we are generous, even if we're not generous. I mean, think about this. When is the last time that someone in your community group confessed to being greedy? Probably hasn't happened very often. In fact, in 10 years of college ministry, I've never had a college student text me and say, hey, I would love to get together and talk to you about some things. And then we sit down and he says, hey, I wanted to get together because I wanted to confess to you that the reason I want to go to med school or law school or move to New York City when I graduate is because I love money and I want a lot of it. No one's ever said that to me. And yet that is the motive behind why a lot of people go those routes. Not all of them, of course, but, but, but some of them. And so the problem is that we don't realize that we love money because our hearts are deceitful. And so when you have a heart that is deceitful and a heart that is deeply connected to money, it's gonna lead to some problems. And so we need to hear what God has to say about it. But first, I know that even after that, some of you are still thinking, well, I just feel like God is after my money and my possessions. To which I would say, yes, God is absolutely after your money and possessions because he's after your heart. He's, he's after your money and possessions, but he's after so much more than your money and possessions. He's after your vision. He's after your future. He's after your career. He's after your relationships. He's after your gifts. And he's after your money because for all those reasons, he's after your heart. And so Jesus says, you cannot love both God and money. So we're gonna see what James has to say here in chapter five, starting in verse one. He says this, come now, you rich. So James starts with the interesting phrase, come now. So this phrase is only used twice in the New Testament, both times by James. And this is basically James's way of sort of flicking you on the head and saying, wake up, listen to what I'm saying. And so he says, come now, you rich. Now, I know that as soon as I say the word rich, some of you think, okay, well, okay, good. He's not talking to me. I'm not rich. I'm out. Well, not so fast, because if you make $25,000 per year, you are in the top 2% of the world. And so you are someone's Elon Musk. You are someone's Jeff Bezos. Okay, back to verse one. So verses, verses one through six are a counter vision. Verse one says this. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, isn't James's message here seeker sensitive? <laughs> he, he's telling the ungodly rich to weep and howl for the misery that's coming upon them. And so what he's doing here, just to be clear, he's not condemning their wealth. 
what, what he's doing is he's condemning what is being done or not done with their wealth. And so when he says your riches have rotted, your clothes have been eaten by moths and your silver and your gold have corroded, what he is condemning here is hoarding. Now, do we happen to have any hoarders in the room? Do any of you wanna throw something away and your wife or husband won't let you? Some of you still have your third grade soccer participation trophy. (laughs) Some of you still have your Beanie Babies or your Pokemon cards because you still think that you're gonna be able to sell them for a lot of money someday. You're not, (laughs) you're not going to. And, and so, and so what, what is hoarding? So hoarding is whenever you, you keep more of something than you need because the idea of you getting rid of it gives you anxiety. Hoarding, it can be defined concisely by saying that it is excessive accumulation. Well, what are the most common things that people hoard? Well, clothes and shoes, magazines and newspapers, food, holiday decorations, old chargers and cords, and outdated electronics. Some of you bought a new iPhone two or three years ago and you still have the box underneath your bed. Listen to me, I'm trying to help. You can throw that thing away. I promise, no, you're, you're not gonna need that ever. And so w- when we think about hoarding, we tend to think about these silly examples or we think about the TV show hoarders. But what James is saying in this passage is he says that hoarding is excessive accumulation of your wealth. And for some of you, here's what I know, is that so much of your life is built around your desire to get and to keep and to have. And so many of your decisions are toward that end, and it's just what controls you. And have you ever ever thought about this? Why is it that you have such a desire to hoard your wealth? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I wrote down a couple. For some of you, you have just-in-case-itis, is how I would say it. You feel the need to keep every little thing that you have just in case you might need it. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we're gonna talk here shortly about why it's definitely wise to save at some level. But some of you have just in case itis in that you are just hoarding stuff for the future just in case you might need it. For some of you, you you wanna keep things because you think you might wanna give it to your kids. And that's not even really a bad thing either. I mean, it, it does say in the book of Proverbs that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But probably the main reason that some of you hoard is because you want to maintain as much control and comfort and security as possible. So let's say you love money. You don't love money for no reason. Like, like what is at the root of your love of money? Well, for, for most of us, it's a desire for control, for comfort and security. And so let's take control and security. There is something about your 401k looking good that makes you feel safe and secure and protected. Well, how's it been looking over the last couple of weeks? I know the answer, not good. But, but it tend, things like that tend to make us feel in control. But think about this, how much control can money really give you? I mean, it might be able to give you some control and you might, it, you might be able to fly to wherever to get the best medical care, or it might be able to buy you some political influence, or maybe it'll get your kid into a certain school. And so in some sense of the word, it will give you some control. But dis, despite that, even the richest of the rich are unable to build walls around them high enough to keep out suffering. They can't do it. There's so many examples of this. I mean, just just think of Steve Jobs. He got pancreatic cancer in his 50s. 
How much control did his billions and billions of dollars give him? Not much. But what about Kobe Bryant? He was 41 when he passed away. He was worth half a billion dollars. It didn't give him much control. And we could go on and on. The point is that we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that our money gives us control over our lives when it actually doesn't. And you see, one of the most freeing things that you can realize or the most freeing things you can come to terms with is that almost all of the control that you feel like you have is an illusion. If I were to give you five minutes right now and I were to have you write down two lists and on one list is the things you control and in the other list is the things that you can't control, the list of things that you can't control would be way longer than the things that you can. Now, I know that for some of you control freaks, you don't like to hear that. You're already trying to figure out, all right, how can I control my lack of control? You can't, for the most part, is what I'm saying. And so regardless of how much money you make or how much money you have, your life could be changed forever right now by your phone buzzing in your pocket with some, with some news that you weren't expecting. You can't build walls around you high enough to keep out suffering. And so the love of money is rooted in a desire for control and security, but it's also rooted in a desire for comfort. And so money might not be able to make you happy, but it can certainly certainly make you comfortable in a lot of ways. I mean, it can buy you a house in a comfortable neighborhood. It can buy you a reliable car. It can buy you some nice clothes that feel comfortable. It might be able to buy you a stay-at-home nanny. It might be able to buy you a a security system with 50 cameras around your house. All those things might make you feel comfortable. And the love of money is often rooted in that desire, the desire to be comfortable. So let's keep going. Let's look at verse four. Verse four says this. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So when this passage was written, what would often happen is that rich landowners would hire out poor people to work their fields. And what would happen sometimes is that after the the workday was over, what was supposed to happen is the landowners were supposed to pay the workers but sometimes they did not do that. And if, that, if you were a poor worker, that was a big deal because in those times, if you didn't get paid at the end of the day, you and your family might not get to eat. And so in verse four, what, J, what James is condemning is he's condemning the ungodly rich by saying, you have taken advantage of the poor, that your riches have made you callous, your riches have made you careless, and your riches have made you insensitive to the people around you. And the condemnation here, if I could put it concisely, is that he's condemning the ungodly rich because they love money and they use people. And so basically the options in your life, are you have two options. You're either gonna love money and use people or you're gonna use money to love people. And if you're not using money to love people, you're probably living a life that is pretty consistent with what James is describing in verse five when he says this. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Well, what is luxury? So luxury is extravagant comfort. And so we've already covered hoarders. Well, some of you are the spenders. The, the spenders, what they want to do is they want to live lives of extravagant comfort. And what a spender will normally do is they will reward themselves when they've had a hard day by spending. And so what this looks like is this, well, I had a hard day, I'm gonna get takeout. 
or I had a hard day, I'm going to go browse around at Target. Or I had a hard day, I'm going to go buy some new shorts at Lululemon. Or I had a hard day, I'm going to go shop on Amazon. Who do you think has the highest percentage of credit card debt when compared to their income? Single women in their 20s who apparently have had a lot of hard days. And so some of you, here's what I know. Some of you are spenders and you married the savers. And, and that's caused all sorts of problems. In fact, when we have premarital counseling with couples, we see this often. We'll have the guy who grew up in a household where there was excessive saving. And then the girl, she grew up in a household where they spend. And, and we tell them early on, it's like, look, it's like you guys grew up in households that viewed money differently. You're gonna have to figure this out or else it's gonna cause some serious problems. And so some are hoarders, some are spenders, but I think that there are more categories than this. I've got three more. Some of you are what I would call avoiders. So what the avoider does is they don't wanna talk about money. They don't wanna think about money. They don't wanna look at their bills when they come in the mail. And, and if you talk to an avoider, you'll, you'll ask them, you'll say, well, well, how are things going financially? And they'll say, well, I don't know. I don't wanna know. I, I don't feel like I need to know. And you talk to them, you're just like, this is not good. It's like, you, you need to know these things. And so some are avoiders. And then some, when it comes to money, they are manipulators. So what, what the manipulator does is they try to use their money for control. So the manipulator can sometimes be generous, but they are generous in a way that they want there to be strings attached to their generosity. And so this is the mom who has graciously agreed to pay for her daughter's wedding. But because she wants to invite her 25 closest friends, she's reminding her daughter every week, remember who's paying for this wedding? I've seen this. Now, if you are gracious enough to pay for your kid's wedding, should you have some say in who gets invited? Of course, but, but there's a tension there because you, don't, you, you wanna be generous, but you don't wanna manipulate. The manipulator is the dad who threatens to cut off his son financially if he doesn't go to law school like he wants him to. Now, parents, you can and should give advice, absolutely. But if you want to give to your children, then do so graciously and not in a way that's trying to manipulate them. And then lastly, with money, some are the flaunters. So the flaunter, when it comes to money, what they're doing is they are trying to spend their money in a way that lets everyone know that they have it. So much of their life is about projecting an image of themselves that they want people to see. And what's worse than that is when you have people who are spending money they don't have to impress people they don't know. And so you have people taking out enormous amounts of debt to make it seem like they're wealthy, but they're actually, their finances are in a mess. And so some are hoarders, some are spenders, some are avoiders, some are manipulators, some are flaunters. We are called as Christians to be givers. And what a giver does is a giver uses money to love people. And in verse six, James is gonna talk about the danger of loving money instead of loving people. And so in verse six, he says this, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so the big idea here is that the love of money leads to injustice. And you might read this and say, well, this sounds a little bit extreme. Is James actually saying that I might kill someone over money? Maybe. What's the motive of most crime? Money. When you watch one of those murder mystery TV shows and the spouse dies in a snorkeling accident in Aruba, isn't it always the spouse who did it? It is. 
they're wanting to cash in on that life insurance policy and head back to the States. And the reason why this is is because the love of money leads to injustice. And then one more thing about verse six is it's impossible to read verse six without thinking about Jesus. Because think about it. It says, Jesus was the righteous person. Jesus was condemned and murdered. Jesus did not resist. Well, think about this. What was at the root of of Judas' betrayal of Jesus? It was the love of money. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so why did Jesus and James talk about money? Not because money is a bad thing, but because it's a dangerous thing. Which is why we encourage our church to give, save, live in that order. You see, the problem is that some of you have this backwards. You want to live off of your income, have a good time, buy some stuff. And then if you have some money left over, then you'll save. And then maybe if you have some left over, then you might give. But what we encourage is give, save, live. So we're gonna walk through these. So the first is give first to honor God. So the principle of giving your first and your best is clear throughout scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, it's clear. It says says in Proverbs, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Well, another question to ask is, well, why should I give to the church first? Well, we see in Galatians that we are to do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so the way that the church is supported is through the generosity of the local body. And one of the things that we believe here is that the church is God's plan A for discipleship. That the church is God's plan A for pushing back darkness throughout the world. That's what the church does. And so, yes, there are some great Christian organizations, and we love those, and we support many of those as a, as a, as a church. There are some great Christian parachurch ministries, and we support those as well. But without a healthy local church, everything else around it unravels. A healthy local church is the glue that's going to hold everything else together. My wife, Olivia, and I, what this looks like for us is we, we love parachurch ministries. We are connected to some people who work for those. We're connected to some missionaries, and we love to give towards them. But we have committed to giving the overwhelming majority of our monthly giving to the local church. And the reason we've done that is because we want our giving to be as strategic as possible. We want our giving to be towards the, at the tip of the spear when it comes to pushing back darkness around the world. And so, for example, let's say that you want to care for the poor in a third world country. What is the most effective way to do that? Well, that's a complicated question. I mean, people write books to try to answer that question. But you have, you have multiple options. One option is you can give directly to that community in a third world country. Maybe you build them a well or you buy them some mosquito nets. And, and those things are good. We should do those things. But what is the most effective long-term sustainable strategy is for there to be a healthy local church in that area. Because if there's a healthy local church in that area, then what they're gonna be doing is they're gonna be bringing hope to lost people, which is what we care most about. And then they're also gonna be bringing help to the last and the least. And so wherever there is a healthy local church, they're gonna be meeting the needs of their community. And so giving is first with a priority to the local church. The second is saving to be wise. So we as Christians, we need to grow in financial wisdom. We've already covered that everything that you have is is God's already. And so we need to be good stewards of God's money. And what a steward does is is they manage their owner's assets for the owner's benefit. And we need to do this well. I've got a buddy who's a godly man, but he said to me before, he said, why should I bother to save 
why should I bother, bother to invest my money if I just trust that God's going to take care of me? Well, that's a reasonable question, but there's the, two main, the two main reasons are, number one, if you're not saving, and if you're not stewarding, you're stewarding your money well, then you're not going to be able to be generous. And then the second reason is if you are not saving, then you run the risk of being a burden on your family as you age. And, and nobody wants that. And so some practical advice, if you are in middle school or high school or college, I have some profound advice for you for when you start making money. Spend less than you make. Some of you parents are like, say it one more time. <laughs> Spend less than you make. Some of you are incredible at spending your parents' money. But I'm telling you, there's going to come a day when you're not going to be spending their money anymore. It's going to be yours. And for some of you, your next step might be maybe you need to get a financial advisor finally. Some of you still have not asked Dave Ramsey into your heart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, it might be helpful to take Dave Ramsey's financial peace class. That can be very helpful. And so we give first to honor God. We save to be wise. And then the last one is we live off the rest and teach ourselves contentment. Oh, this is the hard one. This is not easy. Being content with your financial situation is, is hard. It's not easy because what we want is we want a high standard of living now. And we're able to take out, we're, we're wanting to take out large amounts of loans to do it. So my parents are retired public school teachers. My mom taught sixth grade math. My dad taught high school agriculture. And before I was born, they lived in a single wide trailer for about four or five years. And then when I was about 10, or sorry, right before my brother was born, they built a three-bed, three-bath house. And then over the course of a decade or so, they paid off the house. And then when I was about 10 years old, they built a pool out back. And then when I was in high school, we built a pool house. And over time, just sort of gradually built all those things. And so by the time I was in my late teens and I was entering college, when I was in my early 20s, I was looking over to my parents and I was seeing their standard of living. It's like, well, they've got a pool and a pool house and a nice house. And you see, what has happened is that so many people in their early 20s and mid-20s, they are used to their parents' standard of living because they're seeing their parents at their peak earning potential. And what happens is they look at their parents and they say, in their early 20s, I want a big house. I need a pool. I need a pool house. And it's like, you do realize that when your parents were in their 20s, they were in a one-bedroom apartment. But the reason we feel this way is because we're so discontent. And here's why this is important. If you are not living beneath your means, then you are never gonna be able to be generous. If, if your means are right here and you're living right here, then it is so unlikely that you'll ever be able to be generous to anyone. And so what we're called to do, we're called to give, we're called to save, we're called to live. And so what James is gonna do now, we're gonna pick back up in verse seven. So what he's gonna do is he's gonna sort of transition here to talking about your pleasure, to talking about your pain. And what he's gonna say is, he's gonna, he's gonna say, you need an eternal perspective for both of those. And so he starts here in verse seven, and he's speaking directly to Christians here, many of which were suffering. He says this, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
And so what James is doing here is he's encouraging us to have an eternal perspective and encouraging us to have patience while we suffer. The honest truth is that most of, most of us struggle to be patient in any situation, much less when we're suffering. I mean, some of you are so impatient that you set the microwave for one minute, and then with 10 seconds left, you're opening up because you can't let, wait the last 10 seconds. Am I the only one? I don't think so. But what James is saying here is he's saying, be patient during your times of pain because your suffering has an end date. And the way that he tries to illustrate this is with the illustration of the farmer. So I grew up on a farm, but it was a cattle farm, so I don't really know much about crops. But what I do know about crops is that once you plant something, there's not a whole lot you can do to make it grow faster. What you have to do is you just have to be patient and wait. But not only that, while you're waiting, you're not just sitting around and doing nothing. You're, you, while you're waiting, you're working. You're pulling weeds. Maybe you're putting fertilizer out, things like that. And in the same way, what James is saying, he says, be patient while you're suffering because your suffering has an end date. Jesus will either return and your suffering will be over or your suffering will be over when you die and are with him. And you see, what the farmer does is he waits with reasonable hope. Whenever, after he plants his crops, he's watered it, he's put fertilizer out, he's pulled weeds. What he does is he has to wait with reasonable hope. Some of you have seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. And at the end of that movie, what Andy says to Red in a letter is he says, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And that's true. Hope is a good thing. And hope is what will allow you to be patient while you suffer. There was a study done a couple years ago, or many years ago, actually, but at UC Berkeley. And what they did in this circle, or sorry, what they did in this study is they had two groups of rats and they had them swim until they drowned. And so it wasn't the most humane study, but this is what they did. And so they had one group of rats and they, they had them swim until they drowned and they swam for seven hours. And then they took the second group of rats and had them swim. And right when they were getting exhausted and they were about to drown, what they would do is they would pick up the rat briefly and then put it right back in. And they did that over and over until those rats eventually drowned. Those rats swam for 20 hours. Why? It's because they had experienced a rescue. They, and, and the hope of a rescue is what gave them endurance to keep going. And so for the Christian, the hope that your suffering has an end date should allow you to walk through difficult seasons with hope and with patience. And so the illustration with the farmer shows your suffering has an end date, but it also shows you that while you wait, while you're in suffering, there's still work to be done. And so if you're in a season of suffering, ask yourself this question, who can I be investing in? If, if you're suffering, maybe you can ask this question, who around me is also suffering in a similar way that I can minister to in a unique way in this season? And so we're called to work while we wait. So James is gonna go on in verse nine. He's gonna say that as you are patient, as you suffer, verse nine, do not grumble against one another's, against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So what James does here in verse nine is he says, while you're suffering, don't grumble against one another because that's not gonna help anything. And then in verse 10, what he says is he says, remember the prophets and the example that they set. So he says, remember Jeremiah, remember Ezekiel and how they suffered well. And then in verse 11, he mentions the steadfastness of Job. So what's interesting about this is this is the only mention of Job in the entire New Testament. And if you remember, Job was a good guy. The Bible says that Job was a blameless and upright man. And not only was he a good guy, but he was rich. He had a big family, he had seven sons, he had three daughters, he had tons of livestock. Well, what happens in Job 1 is you see that he loses everything. All of his kids die. He loses all of his livestock and he's just in a rough place. He is in the middle of suffering. And to make things worse, what his wife tells him is she says, Job, you should curse God and die. But what does Job do in his suffering? He, he never curses God. What he does is he suffers well. He perseveres. Job remains steadfast in his suffering. And what we see with Job eventually is that the story actually has a happy ending. Job eventually is restored. But before Job is restored, he, you'll see what he says here in Job 19. And as we read this, I want you to ask yourself, if you are in a season of suffering, what would it look like for you to suffer with this perspective? So Job, Job says this, and again, Job knew it wasn't the end of his story. So he says this, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And so Job was able to remain steadfast while he was suffering because he was looking to the future with reasonable hope. Job was looking to the future with hope because he knew that his suffering had an end date. And so if, if you are here and you're in a season of suffering, what you need to know is that suffering, if you're a Christian, suffering is not the end of your story. That if you're a Christian, your suffering has an end date. If you're a Christian, you can walk through suffering with reasonable hope. You see, the reason that James gives us these examples of the prophets, the reason he gives us the example of Job is because we need examples of what it looks like to suffer well. Two Cities is a multi-generational church. But despite that, we, our average age is probably 35 to 40. And so because of that, over the last few years, we've not had many members pass away. Well, many of you may know of Brad Atkins. So Brad was a member of our church who last week passed away at the age of 56 after a long battle with cancer. Brad and his family, they were missionaries with the IMB for about 14 years. And I didn't know Brad very well, but over the last couple months, I got to know him a little bit. And two weeks ago, Pastor Donovan and I, we went to hospice to visit Brad. And we walk in the room and Brad's sitting there in his hospice bed and He's weak. You can tell he's weak. He feels weak. And, it, and by this point, he's lost 60 or 70 pounds. And, but despite that, he, was, he had a great attitude. He was encouraging. He was talkative. 
And then towards the end, what I did is I read this passage in James 5 to Brad. And then what Donovan said to Brad, I don't think I'll ever forget it. He looked at Brad, he said, Brad, right now, your body feels weak. And it is. But your life has never been more powerful than it is right now. Why is that? It's because like we see in verse 10, Brad was giving us yet another example of suffering and patience. Brad was giving us an example of what it looks like to remain steadfast. As he looked to the future, in in light of eternity, Brad was looking to the future with a reasonable hope. Well, what was his hope? The the hope was rooted in in Brad's belief that because of Christ, his suffering had an end date. We see in verse nine, it says, the judge is standing at the door. If you are here and you are not a Christian, do you understand that at the end of your life, you will stand before a just and a holy God and you will be judged? The passage says, the judge is standing at the door. The doorknob is turning, which is a reminder that you're not as far from eternity as you might think. And the reality is you would be judged either on the basis of your righteousness or you'll be judged based on the righteousness of someone else. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Jesus Christ was the righteous man. Jesus Christ did not sin, but he did suffer. And what he did is he suffered on the cross in the place of anyone who would repent and believe. And so if you're here today and you have been rejecting God, how do you think God wants to respond to you right now? Despite your rejection of him, what he wants to do is he wants to extend to you compassion and mercy. Maybe you've been living for yourself. Maybe you've been loving money and using people. Well, how does God want to respond to you? How does he respond to your greed? He responds with generosity. And so in just a few moments, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go into a time of communion. And communion, in the same way that James calls us to remember the steadfastness of Job, communion is a great time for us to remember the generosity of God. And so as you take communion, it's a great opportunity to remember that if you are in Christ, despite your suffering, God is for you, he's not against you. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed, I just wanna give you a moment just between you and God, just to consider some questions. The first is, does the reality of eternity affect the way that you live your life at all? Does the reality of eternity affect the way that you spend your wealth? Are you generous? Five years after you die, what will you wish you had given away if you still had the chance? And then lastly, if you are suffering, are you suffering with patience and confidence that your suffering has an end date? Father, you are a generous and gracious God. You have suffered for us and you have suffered instead of us. And so Lord, I pray that that we as a church would be a church that keeps eternity in mind, 
that we would have an eternal perspective and that our eternal perspective would inform what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our relationships. And Father, I just pray that, that as we suffer, that you would help us to remember of the hope we have in you, hope of restoration, hope of healing, hope of being with you someday. I pray this in Jesus' name.